the most difficult part of all of this is not necessarily to understand the ideas, but to overcome existing paradigms in order to accept new ones. Ladies and gentlemen, we Paranormal evidence gives us examples of the spontaneous materialization of information. One of the features of my work, Tim, was to identify this concept of information, not only as part of the way to measure or look at the universe or understand it, but it's the fundamental paradigm of the universe. It is the pinnacle of every aspect of reality that we can analyze and observe and describe. There's every indication that this information comes from an area or a realm or a dimension outside of the four dimensions of space-time. Now, scientists don't normally like to look at it this way because it drags physicists into a place where here be monsters and they just don't want to go there. But I could take a scientist and drag him by force to the table. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7, coming at you here with the concluding portion of our double episode week, as we've already rolled out the baseball special, and now we provide you with a pure esoteric edition of the program. On this installment of BOA Audio, we welcome author Thomas Fusco for a discussion on his groundbreaking book, Behind the Cosmic Veil. And over the course of this lengthy conversation, we are going to dissect Thomas's theory on the nature of the universe and learn how it may explain the way paranormal phenomena manifest themselves. We'll also talk about the predictive nature of his theories and the challenges of getting his work recognized by mainstream science. Since I knew going into this conversation that Thomas's theories are richly detailed and quite complex, I opted for the classic BOA audio style of really letting Thomas unpack these theories and explain them with as much time as he needed. Altogether, it is an engrossing edition of the program, which may provide a whole new perspective on the world around you as Thomas Fusco takes us behind the cosmic veil. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Thomas Fusco, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Thomas Fusco has devoted nearly three decades of research into the relationship between mind, physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and paranormal phenomena, with the goal of uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations. Since the publication of his book, Behind the Cosmic Veil, in the summer of 2011, 
Thomas has appeared on over 200 national and international radio programs to detail his remarkable theories. His website is www.cosmicveil.com. Pretty simple, all one word. Cosmicveil.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 7th, 2013. Thomas Fusco takes us behind the Cosmic Veil on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. I have a feeling you are in store for a very compelling conversation here this week. Our guest is Thomas Fusco. He's the author of the book Behind the Cosmic Veil, A New Vision of Reality. Chances are you've heard him on a whole bunch of different programs. He's done a wealth of appearances over the last year talking about this book and his theories. He is an independent researcher who has devoted nearly three decades investigating the relationship between mind, physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and paranormal phenomena with the goal of uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations. So you see, he's got a lofty goal here. This is going to be exciting. We're going to talk about his theories and his research and a whole bunch of other stuff. So like I said, it's been a long time coming. Thomas actually sent me the book quite a while ago. And as long-time listeners of the program know, I, I am the master of procrastination and uh, ill-fitting scheduling. So we finally got around to it here in the new year, getting Thomas on the show. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thomas Fusco, welcome to Banal of America Audio. How's it going, Tim? It's going well. I'm excited to get you on the show finally. Like I said, uh, it's been a long time coming and definitely a conversation I've been looking forward to having. And, of course, folks can find out more at CosmicVail.com, and you spell Veil, V-E-I-L, not not Veil like Veil, Colorado. So don't don't make that mistake, folks. Uh, Thomas, let's start out, you know, with the standard bio background. Who is Thomas Fusco, and, you know, how did this whole journey for you unfold? Well, for me, I think, uh, like most people that get into these uh, alternate uh, genres of study, um, I had some experiences, uh, you might call them parapsychological, in my teens and early 20s uh, that were profound enough to cause me to call into question the model of reality that was taught to me in physics. Um, but rather than to go into an experiential type or a practicing type of uh, avenue with these. Uh, it was definitely theoretical for me. The compelling question became, uh, how could the universe possibly be put together uh, that would explain how these things could occur? And so my research over the decades has focused on that, uh, looking at many, many different sources and uh, gathering an awful lot of data and reported observations uh, to gel them into a logical model that answers the pertinent questions that are addressed to it. And that's what's in the book. Like I said that earlier here, you know, you got this lofty, this is a pretty serious sort of uh, big picture examination of, like I said, <laughs> the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations. That's pretty... That's pretty serious stuff. We're not, you know, you're not just trying to figure out where where UFOs come from, or uh, you know, whether or not Bigfoot's real. Uh, absolutely, uh, and and my approach is a little different in that way. Um, you know, it's kind of like 
looking at the top-down, um, most investigators and researchers in these kinds of fields uh, focus on their particular area of interest. Uh, but for me, the picture was much bigger than that. We had to talk about some very fundamental natures or, or qualities of the universe itself um, because not only don't, do we have these uh, uh, paranormal or supernatural uh, type phenomena and observations that we're dealing with, but there are persistent uh, problems and anomalies that we have in mainstream conventional physics that uh, continue to defy uh, any type of a explanation or a uh, conclusion on them. And so... I kind of lumped this all together and said, look, we need to come up with some sort of a conceptual model that helps us to understand all of these kinds of mysteries. It's sort of like a unified field theory. You're trying to come up with like sort of the uh, the overarching why does this happen sort of thing, which I think is important because otherwise we need a roadmap, if you will. Yeah, in, in physics it's called the theory of everything. Or there you go, yeah. OA. Um, <clears throat> And all of these kinds of theories have to start out with some sort of a conception as far as the concept of it. Uh, Einstein did, of course, incredible work with uh, relativity, and there's a whole lot of math. He worked for a decade on the mathematics on it. Uh, but they originally, his, his work originally started with some basic premises that were really concepts. They were visualizations. And so, you know, that's the starting point, and this is where I feel that I've been able to make a lot of progress. Right, right. At the risk of sort of, uh, we, we laughed about this at the beginning of the uh, conversation before we started the show, but at the risk of, like, giving the book away, can you tell us sort of the, the theory? Can you tell us the, you know, let me dissect it a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Okay, like I said, I didn't want... <laughs> You know, I, I didn't want to give away the secret here, but it's a kind of critical to the to the conversation. So fire away with this with this theory, and hopefully I can I can follow along on this. Okay, because the I'm concerned. Called... Science gives me a rash, so I, I don't. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, again, what I try to do is to keep everything in you know relatively easy to understand conceptual models. I don't talk about you know mathematics or get into any particular avenue too deeply in the book itself. Uh, just the basic principles. And, uh, you know, the most difficult part of all of this is not necessarily to understand the ideas, but to overcome existing paradigms in order to accept new ones. And, of course, that's very common to the human condition. We don't like to change the way we look at the world. So, you know, to start out, uh, what we needed to do or what I needed to do was to come up uh, with some fundamental questions. Uh, and number one is basically the idea of information. Everything in the universe is assembled from information. And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a, uh, an established principle in physics today, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of information, so much so that we have now for some time an extension to the traditional laws of conservation. Uh, everybody remembers in school hearing at least once, 
matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Right. Um, but what we have today in physics is an extension to that called quantum unitarity. And what that means is that the information from which matter and energy is assembled itself can neither be created nor destroyed. Um, this implies that information underlies everything in the physical universe, all of its structures. Now, let me stop you here because I'm, con- I'm, I'm already confused. <laughs> what, what, I, I, I feel like I, I feel like I sound like an ass, but what is information? Because it's such a nebulous sort of. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. I'm trying, you know, because do you mean like atoms or 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 what? What what is what? Can I can I hold it in my hand? Information? Well, not really. Uh, but we understand. You know, for example, mm-hmm. electrons are assembled in the exact same way everywhere in the universe. Right. There aren't multiple ways to assemble an electron. So an electron is assembled according to a, a, a certain set of instructions, so to speak. Okay. And these instructions are what we would call information. Okay, okay. Uh, they are the they are reflected. Uh, information is reflected quite a bit in our mathematics. Hmm. Uh, that, you know, mathematics... Uh, follows a certain repeatable pattern and that it reflects the way that the universe is put together. Um, so, for example, if we look with our modern telescopes and uh, other types of uh, sensing devices at some of the most remote objects in the universe that we can see and observe, uh, we can actually collect um, radiation signals from them. Um, light waves, um, you know, different types of radiation. And we could do spectral analysis on those and find out a lot of information about that distant object, uh, be it a galaxy or something else, uh, how hot it is, how far away it is, how fast it's rotating, uh, even some of the elements that uh, comprise its constituents. All of that can be derived from the spectral analysis of its light because the mathematics that work here also work over there in the identical way. Okay, so the information is kind of like like fundamental laws, or if you will, or or just I have an idea of what you're saying now. So yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, another way that uh, I talk about it uh, is because you're right when we use information. In common language, we're not necessarily talking about the same usage when it comes to physics. Hmm. We have a number of words in physics like that. Um, one of the problems with um, with our theories involving black holes and the laity or lay people don't normally realize that the classical model of the black hole that was expressed by Stephen Hawking is by no means universally accepted in the astrophysics community. Um, all of those theories suffer from the destruction of information. And since we know that that is not possible according to all the laws that we see, that it creates a stumbling block for us to really understand precisely what a black hole is and what it's doing inside. Hmm. Anyway, uh, what one of the features of my work, Tim, was to identify this concept of information. 
not only as part of the way to measure or look at the universe or understand it, but it's the fundamental paradigm of the universe. It is the pinnacle of every aspect of reality that we can analyze and observe and describe. Uh, I liken it to a pyramid okay. where uh, all the, the Great Pyramid of, of Giza is supposed to have more than 2 million stones. If we could imagine all of these being unique in their shape and every one being a various aspect of physical reality, um, the fundamental paradigm of that structure would be the capstone. And that capstone would not only represent the shape of the entire structure, but once that was in place, all the other blocks would fall into line in their exact positions where they're supposed to be. Uh, so for me, information, the idea of information is that capstone, is the fundamental paradigm. Uh, so much so that it, it gives us a definition of what the universe is. And my definition of the universe is that it is an expression of materialized and materializing information. Okay, so it's like the underlying fabric, if you will, of, of, of the whole universe. Yeah, uh, if we could pick one quality of the universe that we could speak in a sentence that would shed light on its entirety and some, some level of understanding, uh, I've found no better idea than the idea that it is an expression of materialized information. Okay. Now, once we get there, uh, once we have that, it, it immediately draws us to two further questions. What is the source of that information? And what is the mechanism by which that information materializes? Yes. And these are fundamental questions to reality. These are questions that are still being uh, struggled over in physics, in mainstream physics. We do not understand how the universe achieved its incredible order. It should not have been so orderly based on our understanding of its early state and how it began. Uh, our universe is so orderly that two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen combine together in a molecule H2O at standard temperature and pressure and at a, in, in the presence of a sufficient gravitational field to gather a collection of these molecules into a pool creates a clear liquid we call water anywhere in the universe those conditions exist. Right. So this is a mystery how this has come into being. Uh, we have other problems with the way that the universe is put together also, uh, especially in quantum physics, where we actually see information materialize in a form with no physical source. Hmm. Um, quantum entanglement is a good example. Uh, this is what, where we have, uh, let's say we have two photons. They're in a correlated pair. They are separated. We separate them and uh, allow them to travel away from each other at the speed of light. And in the correlated pair, they had a balanced spin. So particle A has an upspin and particle B has a downspin. And if we pass particle A through a filter that changes its spin, particle B immediately responds by reversing its own spin. Right. 
to maintain the balance of the pair, even if they're light years apart. This is physically or materially impossible. Right. It's a, it's bizarre. It's like, how do they know? Right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like the old thing about the thermos. Keeps things hot, keeps things cold. How does it know the difference? Yeah. And when you say no, Tim, that's a very important idea because knowledge is information. And all knowledge is derived from information and the very machine that we have, the human brain, that processes knowledge and reasons with knowledge is also assembled from a coherent pattern of information. Uh, a distinct pattern that's different from what is a tree is assembled from or a granite rock is assembled from. Hmm. Uh, it's a way of looking at things in a little bit of a different light. Right, right, exactly. So then how do you... I don't want to jump the gun here or, or cut you in, into the middle of uh, your explanation, but then how do you drape the paranormal into all this? Well, here we have a situation where we have, and, and again, uh, let's step back for a minute. We're okay. not looking at paranormal as a specific, you know, uh, uh, as an exclusive field of study, but just another aspect of reality right. that we observe. Looking at it from from that perspective, we see that paranormal evidence gives us examples of the spontaneous materialization of information. Most other objects in the universe, that process of materialization from its uh, informational pattern or blueprint is, is completed and is so well established and sustained that we're not able to see the process taking place. But in paranormal phenomenon, we see it all the time. We see uh, uh, apparitions on occasion, which is a materialization of information within local space. Um, people hear disembodied voices. A, a vocalization is a coherent collection of information of a specific pattern from which certain oscillation waves can emerge that come to our ears and are translated as meaningful sound as opposed to like static from that you'd get from a TV in between channels or something. Yeah. Um, so this gives us an, an, a, an ability to examine this kind of phenomenon and moreover to conduct certain experiments on it that this theoretical model of mine would predict and this is another thing that's unique about my work, Tim, because it's not a quote-unquote theory. It's a scientific theory. And the difference is that scientific theories make predictions about aspects of reality that are not predicted by other theories, but are also experimentally testable. Okay, well, can, let's talk about that a little bit then. Because when I hear prediction, I'm already like... I'm already imagining the the sullied version of prediction that you hear on <laughs> some other paranormal shows. But these are, as you say, like scientific predictions. Have, have you applied this and, and seen it at work? Absolutely. And you're right, Tim. This is another word that means something different in physics. Right. And it means in colloquial language. Right. You're not telling me who's going to win the NBA championship here or anything like that. You're going to... Absolutely. And and sometimes in interviews, when I say that word, it takes me five minutes to reel everybody back in. <laughs> uh, 
because they go off on a tangent and and misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Right, exactly. I, I understand what you're saying. Give me an, give me an example. One of the greatest accomplishments of Einstein's relativistic theories is that he predicted that the the actual fabric of space-time was warped and bent and curved around every physical object. This is very different than what was believed at his time, which was the Newtonian model that said that space was an empty void that was occupied by matter and energy that moved through time at a, at a fixed meter. Um, so Einstein said space was a substance. It was actually a substantive field that was characterized and defined by four independent variables, height, width, depth, and time. Mm. And this is where we get the term space-time in four dimensions. Uh, Einstein changed the world. But in order to prove this theory, he had to make a prediction that would demonstrate that space is actually a substance and bends. So his prediction was this. If we took a photograph of a solar eclipse, a full solar eclipse, during an eclipse, the sun's light is blocked out from us. And consequently, the stars appear. They begin to become visible like they would be in the night sky. Right. And most people are familiar with this. What Einstein said, he said, take a photograph of that part of the sky. Now, later on, when the eclipse is not there anymore, compare that photo to a photograph of the exact same region of the sky. And where you can see all the stars. Right. And he said, in the vicinity where the solar disk was, you will find a 1.75 degree variation in the position of the starlight coming to us between the two photos. <laughs> and that difference was the bending of light around the, the, the warp of space around the sun. And uh, it took 19 years until someone was uh, ultimately able to successfully conduct this experiment. And when they found his very precise mathematical prediction to be absolutely true, it changed everything. Uh, it changed the world. Uh, and so that's what I mean by prediction. Okay, so now how have you applied your works to predicting the paranormal? Because the paranormal is, you know, that's the big stumbling block for a lot of uh, scientific-minded people. You know, it's, it's unpredictable. Absolutely. And uh, in order to do that, we need to, to, to talk a little bit about these two fundamental questions. Okay. Uh, where does the information come from? Where does the pattern or the database originate from? And the mechanism by which it materializes. Because we have to talk about those first in order to then make predictions uh, about aspects of reality, and then we could talk about some of the experiments that have already been conducted uh, to verify these uh, predictions. There's every indication that this information comes from an area or a realm or a dimension or however you would want to say it mm -hmm. outside of the four dimensions of space-time. Um, the For what we talked about before, for quantum entanglement to work, the information, the knowledge about the state of particle A being transmitted instantaneously across light years 
to particle B would require that information to travel at infinite velocity. Right. And there's no such thing as infinite values within the confines of the physical universe. Uh, anytime that physicists, uh, you know, work mathematical equations to make certain predictions and to test certain theories, anytime they come up with a value of infinity, that's a red flag. Right. They know they've either done something wrong or they've left something out. Uh, so, there is every indication that there is a body of information that exists outside of space-time, what I call above space-time. It is part of a superstructure of the physical universe. This is very different than uh, conventional physics, which is derived from a, uh, a paradigm of materialism. Yeah. In other okay. words, standard physics today says reality is the physical universe, and the physical universe is reality. What my model says is reality is bigger than that, and that the physical universe is only a component, one part of what reality is. Um, this idea of information existing outside of space-time, Tim, is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. Um, from a kind of an analytical or scientific viewpoint, uh, Plato uh, was probably the first one who tackled it, and he called it forms. Uh, these forms are what everything was derived from. Uh, Carl Jung called them uh, psychoid entities. The Bible, even, from a religious point of view, uh, the Old Testament talked about the wisdom of God. Uh, that fills this same kind of a, of a requirement. And the New Testament, in the first paragraph of John, uses the philosophical Greek word logos. We translate it in English into word. But there is no English equivalent. It means matrix, pattern, hmm. mind, thought, order, structure. All of those things are wrapped into this logos. Now, this information dimension, it's not like a place, right? It's not like something you can go to. It's sort of like in keeping with the four, you know, height, width, depth, you know, and information. Is that kind of, kind of how you're positioning this? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That, uh, uh, this is why we, one of the traditional paradigms that has run people into intellectual dead ends is the idea of higher dimensions. It is something that's almost a oxymoron because dimensions describe what is physical. So anything beyond the physical is most likely not dimensional. Uh, and so when we talk about higher dimensions and other dimensions, it leads us down avenues of thought that always uh, terminate in a dead end. Hmm. There's no way that we can go past a certain point because we can't reckon it. Uh, we're trying to assign what I call super physical uh, elements, physical attributes. We see this all the time. Uh, there's all kinds of confusions from different uh, fields of alternate studies. Um, for example, a term that we commonly hear is spirit energy. According to my model, that's a conflict in terms. 
because spirit contains a uniquely identifiable and distinct collection of information that is not physical. While energy is, another thing that lay people are not normally familiar with, that they think matter is physical and energy is not. No, it's all physical. Um, so spirit energy is an attempt to d assign something that's non-physical, physical attributes. Right. Which why when you hear people starting to talk in greater detail about, quote, spirit energy, it starts sounding like nonsense after a moment or two because they reach that intellectual dead end. Hmm. Saying spirit energy is like saying honest politician. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the evidence to it is that it doesn't lead us anywhere. It doesn't. Energy is something that's measurable, you know, and it's quantifiable. Uh, so that idea makes no predictions that are experimentally testable beyond the idea that, uh, you know, uh, the human body appears to lose a certain amount of energy uh, when it dies. Hmm. But that's very explainable by conventional physics, you know. All the energy-generating uh, systems shut down. Right, right, exactly. You know. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> to get back to this idea, in the 20th century, uh, this idea of what I call supergeometry, a superset of the geometry of space-time, uh, is, is expressed in a number of different, uh, places. Uh, a few of the most prominent physicists of the 20th century, not fringe guys or quacks or anything like that, but mainstream, highly respected people like David Bohm, uh, David Finkelstein, John Wheeler, all have their own versions of this idea of a body of information that exists outside of space-time and from which the physical reality of space-time emerges. So Finkelstein's is called coherent superpositions. He also calls it quantum topology. Uh, John Wheeler calls it pre-geometry, which kind of served as a root for what I came up with, supergeometry. Mm. David Bohm called it implicate order. That was this structure that existed outside of space-time, but gave rise to what he called the explicate order of matter and energy, time and space. Uh, so, uh, if we go, if if some people follow the the psychic type of uh, uh, you know uh, fields, uh, Edgar Casey called it the Akasha. It's the exact same idea. Um, so. With that in mind, let's take a look for a moment. Let's jump and take a look at paranormal phenomena. Right, right. Let's tie all this together. All right. Let's start putting it together. Right. Put let's a bow first, on it. Yeah. Let's first look at the idea of information and look at it from that paradigm. This is what I try to, uh, um, you know, express. Forget about the way you normally look at something uh, in the paranormal and look at it from this primary perspective first, as the fundamental perspective regarding information. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, paranormal investigative team, they get a call from a homeowner. We keep seeing this particular woman in the house. She appears, she disappears. You know, sometimes we see her so clearly that we can recognize the, you know, features of her face. 
um, what the heck is going on? Right. The team comes in, starts doing investigating. One of the team members goes to the public library or a place where they keep uh, old newspaper files and starts looking for someone who lived in the house many years ago uh, that may have be, be some sort of a center of this of this activity. And they find a woman, let's say, that died tragically 75, 80 years ago, and that they have a photo of her. And so they get the photograph, and they bring it in, and they show it to the uh, residents. And they look at it in shock. And they say, oh, my gosh, this is the woman we're seeing. This is her. Remember we told you she looked like this and had these features? That's her. Right. All right. Now, how do we see this from a prospective or from a perspective of information? Let's take the original woman that lived 80 years ago. According to science, every part of her physical structure and all of her energetic patterns are assembled from a distinct collection of information that's unique to her. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now... There's a lot of interior to the body, but there's also an exterior that displays the outer part of that information that set, that data set. So we get a device called a camera. A camera is able to record the information that's being transferred through its lens, piggybacked on to what we would call a carrier wave, which are the waves of light. So the information about the exterior of the woman is being conveyed via the carrier waves of light through the lens and onto the photographic plate. Yeah. And we're and the reason why I'm talking about it this way is to have people to start thinking about it scientifically. What's actually happening, you know, in common language or in, in common thought. You know, we talk about seeing this and seeing that. From a scientific perspective, no, no human being has ever seen a thing. We are actually quite blind. All we can see is light that is emanating from or reflecting off a thing. Right, right, exactly, yeah. We cannot see a thing. And, and so when you start thinking about that scientifically, it gives you, gives your mind different avenues to think about it in a more accurate way. So here we have this data set that has been collected on this photographic plate. And it was developed, and we bring that data set in and show it to these individuals who recognize the data set as the same collection of information that they're seeing materialize in their house. So that would not be recognizable unless whatever is materializing in their house is being assembled from the same collection of information that created the woman and the recording on the film. Right, exactly. It has to come from her. Yes, or the body of information that defined her. Mm, Yes. You see, that's the difference. Now, if this super geometric realm, this domain, uh, if you will, that Bohm talked about, that Wheeler talked about, that Finkelstein talked about, and all these people I mentioned earlier, according to their models, that information is stored independently of its materialization. 
you know, it's just like a uh, an extruder, so to speak. You know, with extrusion, they push a material through a shape, mm-hmm. and it comes out extruded. That's how they make, uh, you know, uh, cheese puffs and those kinds of things. Right, right. <laughs> you can destroy the extrusion, the physical extrusion, and yet the machine that made it still exists. And the dye from which that material was pushed through and shaped still exists independently of the product. Hmm. So the same body of information that assembled the physical woman 80 years ago is the same body of information that is forming the current apparition. Otherwise, the apparition would not be recognizable. Now, that brings in... And I may be, I may be cutting you in the middle of this, so I apologize for that, but that, I guess the, the big question though is, and I don't know really, if you sort of look at this, I presume you must, but it is the why question. Why is that happening though? Why is, why is the information leaking back into the present, if you will? Well, there's a couple reasons that I think contribute to that. Now, one of them is intent. And I don't get too involved with intent. Because I look at it in terms of investigating a crime scene, like a police department, Mm -hmm. where you have criminology and you also have forensics. I'm on the forensics team. So I'm not going to talk about whatever intelligent motivation would, uh, would result in this. But from a forensics point of view, space-time is a continuum. And most people don't understand what that word means. They hear it all the time, space-time continuum on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't know what it means. It means that it is a continuous field, that everything connects it to everything else. And so, uh, you know, when we in, encounter an object, there isn't an interruption of space-time, and then we have the object, and then space-time continues on the other side. Space-time continues right through the object. It's actually part of the object itself, what Einstein called a matter point within the fabric of space-time. So I believe that information works in the same way. It is a continuum so that certain pieces of information are linked with other pieces of information. And so consequently, if somebody lived in that house, there's a part of that information that is connected to the body of information that the house is constructed from. Mm, Okay. So there's a connection there. The other thing has to do with the bending of space. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, I believe that human beings have the ability to affect the nature of physical reality around them, Uh, not only directly, but, uh, you know, but also with some sort of a spiritual influence, if for lack of any better word at the moment. Um, and that causes changes in the space-time fabric of that particular area that helps encourage these kinds of spontaneous manifestations, which is why some places are haunted and other places are not. Sort of like how some people are like mediums or whatever, they can see ghosts or something. Maybe that ability is more tuned up in them. Well, well I'm talking about what actually occurs in these in these haunted sites. Mm-hmm. 
because the recording equipment has been known to pick up uh, paranormal effects when nobody was present. So it has something to do with the, you know, with the location itself. Okay. Uh, and I believe it has to do with the fabric of space-time in there and how it's been altered. All right. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, this idea of the picture being shown to the current residents and this collection of information being recognized as the same body of information that created the, or assembled the woman, the original woman 80 years ago, tells us two things. If we're going to accept this phenomenon as genuine, uh, it tells us, number one, that that information is stored in what we call in physics non-locally. It is not stored in any physical structure or at the location because the woman was the physical storage medium. Exactly, yeah. The woman was the hard drive. The hard drive's gone, and yet this information still has a backup somewhere that is independent from its physical construction or that's or the physical area. Um, the other thing that it tells us is that the information can move through time. Exactly, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. But if you're saying space-time is a continuum, isn't that implied, though, that, that, that the information, if it's part of the whole fabric, would is also a continuum? Yes, but it also implies that this information arises or is stored from a realm that is super physical. In other words, it is not constrained by the dimensions of space and time. I see, yeah. So it's not, yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, if we take a look at Einstein's unified field theory and project it further backward in time to the beginning of the universe, uh, it is the standard accepted model in physics today that the universe began with a big bang. And that bang emerged from something that wasn't uh, physical. It was what they call a quantum singularity. And that singularity means everything was wrapped up in a singularity. There's no distinction between anything else. Everything is one. And they say it was infinitely dense and infinitely small. And what we talked about earlier, that infinite word, indicates that it can't possibly be physical. And yet it contained all the information from which all the physical universe arose in all of its structures and all of its laws and principles in a pre-physical state. It existed independently of the physical. And it existed independently of space and time because space and time didn't exist. So in this realm, the body of information that is materializing the woman 80 years ago and the body of information that's materializing an apparition today of that woman exists at the same moment. In that realm where it's stored, there is no 80 years. There is no years. Right. There is right. no time as we understand it. It's timeless. It's, yes, it's an eternal present. Or as God said to Moses, when Moses said, who should I say told me to tell you them all this? He said, tell them I am. Which was, in his primitive mind, the most accurate way that God could describe his eternity. Hmm. Is tell him, I, tell them I am sent you. Um, 
very interesting aspect of, of, of uh, a lot of different points in the Bible that say things that have not been recognized before for what their scientific significance is. Well, that's not a surprise. You know, the Bible and science are almost natural enemies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, um, to try to reconcile them, uh, you know, in the past has taken a, taken a very awkward form. Hmm. Uh, what I have, my work doesn't, does tell or talk about the Bible and it talks about what I call the, uh, the hidden cosmology, you know, that's been hiding in plain view for centuries and nobody's recognized these various points in it hmm. and, and how they help draw us a picture of what's really going on. Well, now I can see how this theory could be applied to what you're talking about with ghosts and spirits and stuff like that. But what about some of the other, you know, big temples of the, of the paranormal? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting and grand theory, but in the sense that like, let's just apply this to like Bigfoot. It's like, you know, the simplest explanation is just this is some creature we haven't found yet. It doesn't need an overarching grand theory, but maybe I'm wrong. So, I mean, what, 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 you, what do you think of that? Well, it's a good question, Tim, because one of the things that I encountered, one of the stumbling blocks I encountered early on in my research and my work was to realize that the paranormal didn't have a good explanation. It didn't have a scientifically relevant definition. Uh, right. And so in order to establish that and, and to take it out of this realm of being this uh, catch-all basket for anything weird or strange or inexplicable that somebody dumps it into this paranormal category, um, what I ultimately came to was that paranormal phenomena or supernatural phenomena uh, produces effects that are observable by way of this non-local causality that I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. that the effect is there, the effect is normal, the observation is normal, but the source isn't in our physical plane. Uh, it's coming from somewhere else. This idea of quantum entanglement of two, you know, particles separated by light years, and yet they instantaneously respond to the same information is an example of non-local causality, or what we call non-locality for short, or what one author said, uh, I, I wish I could remember his name. He said, it's like getting a black eye in Miami from a punch that's thrown in Cleveland. <laughs> but that's kind of how it works. So when we look at paranormal as non-local, uh, let's take a look as an example of a disembodied voice. Uh, that's a characterization of paranormally active locations. The voice itself is normal. We have a normal vocal compression wave, acoustic wave, uh, that is oscillating at a certain frequency and amplitude, carrying certain information, being conveyed to our ears through the medium of the air. You know, we can't hear in a vacuum. So it has to be, con con you know, conducted by a medium. And it reaches our ears and we hear a voice. The difference between a normal and a paranormal voice isn't the effect. It's that in a normal voice, the cause, which would be a set of physical vocal cords, 
is locally connected to the vibrating air column that connects that oscillation with our ears. In a paranormal voice, there is no physical vocal cords. The voice appears to come out of nowhere. There is no physical cause local to the effect that is physically connected to the effect. It's just not there. So that gives us a sound scientific definition of the paranormal that also applies to other aspects of physics. It means that we can then say, if we're going to establish that as a definition for paranormal, we can then extend that to say that the phenomena, the quantum phenomena of entanglement is paranormal. I think so, yeah, yeah. So we're giving it a specific definition and we're able to turn the table, so to speak. But if (laughs) we apply that to Bigfoot, according to my criteria, the cause of the effect that we witness and observe is physical. So Bigfoot is not paranormal. Okay, I see what you're saying, yeah. So so you're sort of honing it in. It's important to do that because, you know, like you were saying, paranormal is like the word sports. You know, Bigfoot's very different from ghosts, which is very different from UFOs, so it's it's hard to really, you know, just like football is different from baseball and different from basketball. Yeah, and you know, if we're if we're going to analyze the actual physics of a baseball and how it's struck and with the bat and all that, we're obviously not talking about anything uh that relates to swimming. Exactly, exactly. And we have to make that distinction before we can begin to analyze it in, you know, in perspective. Right. And and so yeah, and another way I say it is that you know, I believe that someday somebody's going to drag in a Bigfoot body. Um, I don't believe that anybody's going to drag in a body of an apparition. Well, exactly. By 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 definition, an apparition has no body, I suppose, right? <laughs> exactly. It has no local physical cause to the observed effect. So that's what makes it paranormal. Right. Okay. Okay. This is already very fascinating. I'm I'm deeply engrossed in this. So, okay. So you talked about using this as a predictive model. So what have you, how how have you applied it in that form? Okay, this is where we get to this second uh, uh, aspect. We've talked about structure and form with this body of information. All right. What we're actually doing is kind of taking an oriental approach to physics. Uh, the oriental physics, the traditional physics, uh, goes by the name of Wu Li. W-U-L-I. And that's a compound word that means form and substance. The, uh, the metaphor would be if we looked at a snowflake, its crystalline structure is its form. But the ice, the water molecules that it's made from, is its substance. So we have substance and form that comes together to create objects, structures. We've talked about the structure. Now let's talk about the form a little bit. And this is where we can make some very interesting predictions. Um, The form would have to come from the materialization process. The information would shape that materialization into various structures. So, 
if that's the way the universe works, then we have to take a look at the substance of every object in the universe. What do they have in common? And here again, we're going to go back to Einstein's model of the continuous spatial field that he demonstrated or he predicted, and it's been experimentally demonstrated uh, thousands of times in the last hundred years, that space is warped and bent around every physical object. And moreover, what Einstein said is was gravity is a function of that bending of space. Um, so we're going to talk about gravity a little bit, because you know, gravity, Tim, is also paranormal. Okay, yeah. Well, it's very mysterious, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain what I mean by it being paranormal. Uh, in a normal local causality, there has to be a physical connection of a medium between cause and effect. Even when you receive a radio transmission, there's a wave coming from that tower, which is physical, mm -hmm. that conveys the information and connects it to your radio. There's a physical connection. Gravity, there is no physical connection. When we were taught in school about gravity, we were not taught in school about gravity. We were taught in school about gravitational effect. Ah, we yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. We, we were taught the assumed conventional explanation, the material explanation, that it is a force. And it is a force just like electromagnetism, or very similar to electromagnetism. It's an attractive force. This is based on the conclusions made by two of the greatest physicists of the 19th century, Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell. They both concluded that this was a force. Uh, unfortunately, every time we approach gravity as a conventional force, we run into snags. We come up empty-handed. We come up to these dead ends. And one of the fundamental ones is that if it is a force, it must manifest itself as a particle that propagates as a wave. Just like electromagnetism, we have an electron, which is the particulate form of electromagnetism, that propagates as an electromagnetic wave. And so these are fundamental uh, qualities of a physical force. The other forces that we know of are the strong and the weak nuclear forces that work on the atomic level and are conveyed by bosons, which are specific part types of particles that convey and propagate waves of force. When we've looked for a gra we've looked for a graviton, which is a particle of gravity, a gravitational boson. We have looked for that for decades and have never found any stitch of evidence that there is a particle of gravity. And consequently, we have no stitch of evidence that there's a, uh, there's a wave of gravity. We know that gravity can make waves within the fabric of space-time. But just because you drop a stone in the water and it creates waves that go across the, the surface doesn't mean those waves are a propagation of the actual stone. It's an effect caused by the stone. Right, right. Okay. Uh, 
so you're following me so far. So I'm not doing too bad at doing this in layman's terms, am I? No, no, you're doing good. I'm just, I, I like to let the guests roll here. I'll let you unpack this. Uh, that's great. All right. So uh, anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you to get to the predictive nature of the model, though. I want to hear this. Yeah. I want to hear what you've predicted that has, that has, uh, now I sound like I am confusing the, the term prediction, but I, I want to hear where, where this has been applied and, and it works out. Yeah, and it's very important. But like we were talking about before the interview, it's like if you had a, you know, if an author was talking about a suspense uh, uh, thriller. Right. Uh, you can't really talk about the ending until you talk about the plot. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. We're yeah. talking about the plot right now. Gravity is one of the most strangest mysteries in the universe. And it is fundamental to understanding the universe, and we know very little about it. It's the same kind of uh, puzzle, the same kind of, uh, you know, universal scale, this cosmological scale of a puzzle, just like where the order of the universe came from. They're hand in hand. These things are two of the greatest mysteries. So, one of the, uh, for example, the problems we run into gravity. We can't detect a particle of gravity. We see no physical substance to gravity like we do with electromagnetism. So here we have this moon they taught us in school. The moon's held in orbit around the Earth uh, because of gravity. No, the moon is held in orbit around the Earth because of gravitational effect. Hmm. Yeah. In reality, to our best knowledge, there is nothing physical that connects the Earth and the Moon. There's nothing physical. So it's paranormal. We have all these effects we see in the universe, and and, and there's no physical local connection uh, connecting one to the other. It's just not there. Right, right. Uh, when Einstein tried to work his unified field theory equations... What he failed on is that he could not express gravity mathematically throughout the four dimensions, height, width, depth, and time. Couldn't do it. Uh, today we have two great systems to describe reality and observable reality. We have relativity and we have quantum physics that, you know, operates on the micro level. The reason why we haven't been able to reconcile that into a consistent uh, single model is because of gravity. We cannot reconcile gravity between these two forces or these two systems. Um, in modern physics, we have what we call the standard model. You may have heard of it, capital S, capital M. It lists all the particles and all their interactions, the fundamental particles and forces of the universe. And this is where the Higgs boson is needed to fill a vacuum, a hole in that model. But what most people are not aware of is that that model has no hole, no place for gravity. Well, what, is what, no... well what is gravity then? Well, here we go. This is what the mystery is. <laughs> and this is where my paradigm uh, gives us an insight on it. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, the standard model I was mentioning works rather well without even the consideration of gravity. That's bizarre. Um so, what I say is this, the problem that we have with gravity is being, is from looking at it from a material-centric point of view, which means that the physical object, like the Earth, 
generates gravity that then warps the space around the planet. This is the conventional model. What I say is something different. I say that the warping of space comes first, and then information materializes within those warps of space. Hmm. This is what's truly revolutionary about this model. And it's not without precedent. Uh, we were talking, I mentioned earlier about Einstein having difficulties, uh, impossible to reconcile gravity in his unified field theory equation. Theodore Calusa was a contemporary of Einstein. He was helping Einstein work on this problem. Yeah. Um, mathematically. One day Calusa came up with an idea. He says, you know, let's try adding a fifth mathematical coordinate. It's not physical. It lies outside the physical realm. It's a hypothetical. We really can't define it in any way other than giving it a mathematical value. And he added that fifth coordinate into the equations, ran them again. At the very end, he subtracted it back out so all we would have left in the sum would be the physical universe. And lo and behold, that guy was the only man who ever balanced Einstein's equations. <laughs> By adding this extra physical coordinate outside of space-time, uh, Calusa came to believe later in his career that gravity itself was non-local, that it didn't work the way that conventional physics said it worked. That the gravitational effect, the bending of space that caused gravity was actually from some influence that existed outside of space-time and emerged into space-time as these gravitational bends. Would that be the information? Well, the information is the other component. Okay, so the two separate things. I was, I was trying to... I was trying to jump ahead, I guess, <laughs> and, and, and unsolved. So, so you're saying this, it, it, almost like gravity is another dimension. Well, not another dimension. It's another aspect of superphysical reality. Okay. Like, like this Wu Li I was talking about. Yeah. We have a form, uh, but we also have to have substance. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about the substance. See, Einstein's theory of relativity that gave us the understanding of the continuous substantive spatial field addressed the substance of the universe. But Einstein never addressed its former order. He only gave us the description of the clay. Ah, I like that, yeah. Yeah, he didn't tell us about the fingers to shape the clay into all the objects we see. He never went there. He didn't have to. Um, the substance was sufficient to change the world, and his, his, his model has been verified, like I said, thousands and thousands of times. It's the raw clay. What I'm talking about is the source of that raw clay. The fingers. Now, that's the structure. Ah. The other part of it. That's the super geometry. So, imagine... Let's look at the fabric of space-time as a rubber sheet, very thin rubber sheet, and so thin that you could, you might even see through it. Let's stretch it out on a picture frame and stand it up on a stand in the middle of the room, and let's imagine 
And this is an imperfect model, but it conveys the right mental, conve- uh, 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 you know, image. It's just like Einstein in his mental experiments, his thought experiments, where he talked about transparent train cars traveling at the speed of light. Physically impossible, but it conveyed the right impression. So here we have this rubber membrane. And imagine looking at this flat surface and thinking of it about the fabric of space-time, viewing it from our physical side. Imagine on the other side of it there is a super-physical realm. It's something that we can't see, but from which physical reality can emerge. Now imagine taking uh, an object like a coin. Let's talk about a quarter. And it's got all kinds of details, relief, the, 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 uh, you know, the sculpted image, the lettering, all that kind of stuff. Right. And imagine taking that, being on the other side of that fabric, that rubber sheet, and taking it and pressing it in so that we suddenly see a bulge emerge on our side. Okay, yeah. And the rubber is so thin that we can see every minutest detail of that quarter through that rubber. Mm -hmm. And notice that the rubber is bent and curved around the image of the coin. That's how the universe is put together in my model. Everything is made that way. It's being pushed through kind of like from from something on, on the other side. Yes. In other words, there are there's a mechanism which I describe in my book that shows how abstract mathematical wave functions that we use in physics is actually a description of this process that's going on in the superphysical. And so we have this process emerging in our space-time, and it creates depressions, bends, warps in space, and then information drops in from that realm and materializes within those bubbles of space-time. And that's how everything in the universe is put together. Uh, This would explain a number of anomalies. Number one, it would explain why we can't find a graviton, because the object that we're looking at, like the planet, is not the cause. It's the effect. It doesn't produce gravity. It is a result of what causes gravity. It becomes an influence that's focused into the middle of those bubbles and grabs smaller objects and pushes them down on the surface of larger ones. So what we're actually looking at is like making a meatball. Let's say the meatball is is the substance you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's being assembled uh, in form. Let's say it's the constituents, the structural constituents of the universe, your fingers and your hand that are pressing in on that meatball are the bends of space. And the force which your hands are exerting on the meatball is gravity. Huh. Okay. So now I'm going to circle back again on you, Thomas. I hate to do this, but now I think you've caught us up. Tell me about the predictive aspects of the model. Yes, yes. Let's take a look. We're going to talk specifically about paranormal phenomena now. 
because there's other predictions that relate to cosmology and other aspects of physics. But I want to talk about the paranormal because I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, paranormal gives us an, a window into reality where we actually see this materialization process right. occurring in real time. It makes it much easier to study. So let's imagine that inside of a quote-unquote haunted house, you know, I hate to use that word, that term, it has such connotation to it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, locations of, of, of regular paranormal activity. There you go. You know, we're not talking about the vacuum of the cosmos here. We're talking about a location that has what Einstein called physical content. So in the middle of the room, you have all this air. You know, you have gases, molecules, atoms. There's substance. It's not a vacuum like in the cosmos, as I said. Right. So imagine a bubble of space-time expanding in the presence of this physical content in the middle of a room. Um, I liken it like imagine the fabric of space as the surface of an old rubber inner tube, and it's got a weak spot in it. And when you pump it with air, a bubble blows up out of the weak part of the tire. That kind of an idea. The first thing that we would have... Um, is that we would have a compression and twisting of space immediately on the outside uh, surface of this expanding bubble. Now, when it's occupied by physical content, in this case, the air molecules and atoms, that physical stress of that compressed space, Tim, is going to excite the atoms inside of those gases. And when we excite atoms with this kind of a force, uh, we cause the electrons to get excited and they jump up in their orbits, in higher orbits. Um, electrons can jump into higher orbits around a nucleus of an atom. Mm -hmm. There's a number of what they call valences that the electron can occupy. So if we had this happening, the first thing that we would be able to observe and measure in our local space would be the emergence of an electromagnetic field out of thin air. Right. Literally, out of thin air. Um, so that would be one prediction it would make. And, of course, paranormal investigators have verified that prediction hundreds of times. We know that these are uh, occurrences at the site of paranormal events. Uh, we get electromagnetic fields coming from nowhere. Now, in the world of the electron, what goes up must come down. So when that excitement is expended, even temporarily, these electrons will drop back down into their lower orbits. So when they do that, electrons can emit a couple different things. First thing that they emit almost all the time is heat energy. Heat energy, in fact, is, is associated all the time with electromagnetic fields uh, because the electrons emit thermal energy. Um, now, in recent years, paranormal investigators have been bringing thermal cameras into the sites of investigations, and they've picked up some pretty interesting images. Uh, some of them are so precise and so clear that you might even be call, able to call them a thermal apparition. Hmm. Yeah. But when we look at these images 
and we've not really had a theory by which we could look at them in this way before with this kind of a thought process based on the paradigm I'm talking about. Um, we see that their thermal image is fairly uniform across the entire surface of the image that's being taken. See this all the time. We never see an image that is reflective of a living being where, let's say, if you took it of a human being, you would see very hot areas around the face and then it would get darker at the nose and the tips of the ears. Right. You'd see some kind of like uh, bodily form. Yeah. You would see contrasts in the thermal signature. You know, the hair is going to be give a much cooler signature than the face and the clothing, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But in these paranormal images, the signature is, is virtually the same over the entire image. It means two things. Number one, that the thermal generating process, the mechanism, is occurring over the entire image. And it's also the same over the entire image. And it's occurring at its surface. Hmm. So this would be another piece of evidence that would be predicted by this model and has been collected. So that's paranormal effect number two that this model would demonstrate. Okay. Now, at certain energy levels, we can also have electrons emit photons when they drop back down into their lower orbits. We actually exploit this, Tim, day to day in our modern world. We pass an electromagnetic field through a physical substance, excite its electrons. When the electrons, you know, cycle back down, they emit light. They emit photons, particles of light. Um, so we can produce light without a filament or without a plasma. That's how a light-emitting diode works. So it's a known physical process. So if somebody has been following me visually so far, we're talking about in a haunted house, quote-unquote, <laughs> a bubble of space-time, bubble-shaped space-time, jacketed in an electromagnetic field and emitting photons. I've just described what paranormal investigators have traditionally called a luminous orb. Right. That's the world's first scientific model of what a luminous orb is. Anybody that would ask him right now what he's doing is an idiot. Not a journalist. He's an absolute idiot. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. But that's okay. There's some players and coaches that are idiots too. <laughs> Any other questions for Coach Bayham? Okay. Thank you, Coach. Now, have you, this is deeply scientific, this entire theory. Have, has this been looked at? I don't want to besmirch your background or anything like that, but uh, real scientists, you know what I'm talking about, the, the yeah. people with all the letters after their names. Have they looked at your stuff, and, and what do they think of this? Well, everyone who has looked at it found it interesting, mm -hmm. and this is what scientists do. We find that interesting. We find that intriguing. You know, they're very conservative. Right. But I've not had any titled physicist be able to refute any aspect of this and say, well, this is absolutely wrong, and this is why. Right, right. Um, and, of course, we have a scientist in, in our field, in the paranormal field, uh, whose name is David Roundtree, uh, who has actually conducted some very, very fascinating experiments uh, 
that have verified, validated some of the other predictions made by this model. Uh, so we're going to go into that in a moment. Um, as I continue on speaking about this model and the kind of predictions it would make that we see at the site of paranormal events. Um, if we have an expanding bubble of space-time, uh, one of the things that we would see is that it would create a temporary vacuum inside of it. It would take a little bit for the surrounding material content, physical content, which would be the air, and the thermal energy that is held and contained in the air to seep into this opening and create an equilibrium, like water seeking its own level. Uh, this would be almost immeasurable if it happened very slowly, but if it happened quickly, so that the vacuum stood there for a moment, we would have a substantive vacuum, which means that it's a vacuum of substance. We'd also have a thermal vacuum. So one of the effects that we would predict by this model is the detection of a cold spot, seemingly out of midair, that appears and disappears. Hmm. That's paranormal effect number four. That's right, yeah. yeah. No one has ever come up with any kind of a model to even connect three together, <laughs> let alone four. And now on the surface, based on conventional reasoning and observation, what I've mentioned so far seems to, on the surface to be completely disassociated from one another. It's a complete mystery how one thing could be related with the other until this paradigm. When you look at this, it becomes very obvious how it's connected. So now we're going to go to paranormal effect number five. And so far we've been talking about what I call secondary paranormal effects, which means measurable changes to the environment right. that must take place before information materializes within it. See, like a precursor, kind of. There you go. You got it. Yeah. All right. I, I'm following along. I know you think I'm just like, uh, <laughs> I know you think I'm just passed out in my soup here, but I, I'm following along. Don't worry. No, no. I, I, I know that you are. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, and, and, you know, most people are able to follow it in the way that I'm talking about. Uh, because it lays it out in a very logical and 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 as easy to understand way as, as possible. Um, so anyway, we talked about this vacuum of this quickly expanding uh, um, bubble in space time. Be almost like throwing open your front door on a cold winter's day, and you know, getting the inrush of cold and air. Because what we're also going to see is it's going to predict that we're going to measure drops in barometric pressure, which have also been experimentally confirmed, because there's a vacuum inside uh, the bubble temporary, uh, temporarily. If that bubble is big enough, if the bed is big enough and it expands quick enough, we're going to have a movement of air atoms, of gases, from the area of higher pressure to the area of lower pressure within. That's a fundamental function of wind. It works counterintuitively. We all conventionally think the wind blows, but it actually sucks. 
because it's more scientifically accurate to say that vacuums draw volumes within themselves rather than to say volumes push themselves into vacuums. So the air is a wind is a function of air moving from an area of higher pressure to lower pressure. And that's a, an established meteorological uh, uh, principle. So this would produce a mystery breeze where there's no doors and windows open. Suddenly you get an inrushing of air. Just for a moment. Paranormal effect number six. Let's go to paranormal effect number seven. It is very common for people to report a feeling of heaviness just at the onset of a paranormal effect, paranormal event. Well, now, remember, we're talking about bending space. If we're to believe Einstein that says that the bending of space is associated with gravity, we would predict the emergence of an additional gravitational field over and above that of the Earth's. And moreover, we would expect it to occur in all directions at the same time, not just a single line direction that points to the center of the Earth. We would see it if we put it on a grid. We would see the emergence of this field on three axes. This is a, not only explains the feeling of heaviness, but this is one of the predictions that's unexpected. Um, you know, it's not something that has been normally been measured or measured for. This scientist, David Roundtree, did such an experiment and demonstrated that at the onset of a paranormal event that he detected a fluctuation in the gravitation, gravitational field on three axes. Huh. That's deep and that's, that's very significant. Okay, now let's sort of pull back a little bit from this and, and I guess the the question is at the end of the day you've got this theory you can use it to do some predictive modeling uh -huh. but what can we really do but you also said you know you don't think anyone's ever going to be able to like capture a spirit so like what what can we really do with this other than possibly further understand why these things happen or not even why but how these things happen well one of the things that could give us uh, in understanding, you're asking about the practical exponents of this. Right. There's a lot of them. And they're quite amazing. Because it gives us a model of the universe where almost literally anything we can imagine, we can accomplish. Let's talk about apparitions for a moment. Okay. Because I think b before we're over, I'm going to touch on some other paranormal phenomena as well. But if an apparition is a materialization of an existing body of information that was also the same collection of information from which the original person was constructed. Mm -hmm. That means that given the right conditions and the right understanding, that that information can be fully materialized into a physical object. Now, it also means since, since apparitions dematerialize, it means that we can dematerialize an object and rematerialize it at another location from the same body of information that the original materialization came from. We're talking teleportation. Yeah. And bypassing the problems that we have looking at it conventionally, 
that we would have to have a supercomputer so strong that it would be able to record every piece of information from everything within the physical body and reassemble it from that physical information. And we already know that's not possible because of the quantum uncertainty effect, that we can never ascertain with certainty the quantum state of every single particle inside of a human body. But this method, we don't have to, because the information from which we could materialize it already exists. Um, that's one thing we could do. Another thing that's possible is by bending of space, we could generate electromagnetic fields, which means limitless energy. You know, it's yeah. kind of like the zero-point energy concept. It's actually what I think <clears throat> the zero-point energy advocates are talking about is actually a veiled version of this effect that I'm talking about. Gosh, it's possible maybe to time travel with this. Just like the information from the 80-year-old lady, time travel to the current. Right. Imagine a... Um, a bicycle wheel. And let's say the outside perimeter, the outside rim, the wheel itself, the tire and the rim, is normal space-time. And we have all these channels, these spokes, that enter into normal space-time, emerging from a center hub, which is a singularity. When you spin the tire, you see, if you're looking at the rim, you see velocity, and you see dimension. You can actually measure it. Right. But if you're looking dead on at a perfectly centered hub, you see no movement at all. It stands still. Right. So let's say that hub is the source of this information. And let's say spoke A is 80 years ago. Well, you could take that information and push it down spoke B, for example, which is 80 years further on along the hub of the wheel. And you could have time travel. Hmm. Now. Physical time travel or informational time travel? Well, paranormal phenomena gives us the evidence that that information can be materialized from the past into the present. Yeah. Okay. So, theoretically, based on that model, it's possible. Another thing that we could do is that once we understand and assemble the wave functions that bend space, we can begin to manipulate them. So if you were able to collapse, to begin to collapse the space-time bubble surrounding an object, that object would begin to recede from what I call physical presence. It would begin to become transparent. It could even float because the effect of the Earth's gravity would be diminished because its presence in the dimensional realm has been reduced. It might even be able to pass through a wall. Sounds a lot like an apparition, doesn't it? It sure does. And so we could affect any gravity. So we really need to be able to figure out how to harness this stuff. Yeah, we first need to understand, we first need to work the mathematics and the science of the theoretical concept 
And that's all I'm at right now. I'm I'm not a, a, an engineer, right? Nor am I a mathematician. So the work would have to be left to others. David Roundtree is a scientific engineer. He's been able to uh, affect some of the tests to confirm this model. But others need to take up the mantle, so to speak. I, I liken my work to some of the fanciful drawings of Da Vinci, where he would draw flying machines and he envisioned that they were possible and he'd have an arrow you know to an open spot in the drawing that says unknown energy source <laughs> yeah yeah you know uh, so <clears throat> uh, the other thing that influences time is since time is linked to space when you bend space you bend time so at the site of paranormal events we should also be able to detect time fluctuations. And this is another experiment that David Roundtree has conducted and confirmed. And this is completely unanticipated and unexpected by any other theoretical model. I'm surprised hearing all this that, that you know, this hasn't... Now, I know you've done the, the paranormal circuit, if you will, uh, but I'm surprised that there aren't other people, like, picking this up, again, in the mainstream. Because like, in order for this to really be, you know, for for this to break through, it, it sort of needs to be, you know, looked at at a university level. Then it could maybe they'd be like, well, this is it. This is the answer to all this stuff. Uh, absolutely. And, you know? and I agree with you. And um, I'm unfortunately what I've been trying to do is been promoting my work. Like any good author, <laughs> yeah, you know, you have to sell books, you know, and <clears throat> this is what I'm trying to do. Um, there's not a whole lot of talk shows that have a science theme. Uh, I've been on a, a, a few of them, and all have been very impressed. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Uh, oh, what's his name? Agnew? He does um, something X-Radio. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, I don't know. He has a physics degree. Very, very impressed with what I had to say. In fact, during the interview, I actually corrected him on a couple of inaccuracies that he was talking about. Dr. Uh, John uh, um, DeSalvo has physics in his background. He found it very fascinating. But in order to submit something like this to the scientific community, to write a scientific paper, we have to have certain experimental correlations. And it has to be recorded in that kind of a way so that it can be presented to the scientific community. Uh, this other gentleman, Roundtree, and myself have a lot of what is necessary. There's more work that needs to be done. But the two of us are in a unique position for the first time in history to ultimately be able to assemble a scientific paper to submit to the community on paranormal phenomena. Well, that's what we need, man. That's the end game, right? It's the beginning. It's There you go. It's the end of the beginning, right? Yeah, you know, the, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, the Industrial Revolution was the beginning. <laughs> everything that came before that, you know, uh, with the ox-drawn uh, wheels and everything, uh, 
is a different era. So, yeah, it's a beginning. So what other paranormal, we've talked a lot here about uh, ghosts and spirits and stuff like that. And What other, you know, paranormal phenomena do you think can be applied to this, this scenario? Okay, let's talk a little bit now about primary paranormal phenomena. Okay. I distinguish it from the secondary because the secondary are all the observations that have to do with the changes that take place in the local environment prior to the materialization of information in local space, which is the primary effect. Let's talk about something that gets a lot of buzz, a lot of, a lot of uh, press, EVPs, electronic voice phenomena. That's right, yeah. All right. Let's go back to our bubble. Now, when information materializes within a space-time bubble, that bubble conforms itself to the geometry of the materialized information. So, for example, you and I, we have a warping of space-time around us that is shaped identically to our physical geometry. It's not a round bubble that we live inside. You know, the bubble is shaped exactly to our geometric uh, uh, configuration. Mm -hmm. So if we have this round bubble, this spirit orb, so to speak, or what some paranormal investigators have said, observed after hearing my theory, that it perfectly describes what they call a spirit portal, where spirits come through. Kind of interesting, because it works that very same way that they think it works, but speaking of it on a spiritual or metaphysical way. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about uh, voices, for example, paranormal voices as a collection of information, coherent information. Right. When that information, imagine my model earlier that instead of somebody pushing a quarter through the uh, rubber membrane, that somebody's talking into it. And there's a bubble there, and that information is materializing inside that bubble. Well, the second it begins to materialize, that information is going to give out frequency. It's going to give out oscillations that will be reflected on the outside of the bubble. The bubble itself will begin to conform and vibrate in frequency and amplitude to the materializing information. And once that happens, what we've got now is we've got this vibrating bubble sitting in the middle of space that is connected to the air. And so it begins to oscillate the air and acts like a vocal cord. And so people hear the vibration in the air coming off the surface of the bubble in their ear, and they hear a voice coming out of thin air. Because the actual substance of space-time is acting as a loudspeaker. Hmm. Oh, by the way, that's phenomenon number eight. <laughs> for those keeping score at home. Yeah. How long have you been working on this? You've been studying all this for like 30 years. Is this, is this, the, is this the culmination of a 30-year process to figure this all out? Or is this something that you kind of stumbled upon recently, like, you know, maybe in the last five years or something? The The concept, the real broad concept that... You know, both information and substance was originating from outside of space-time. 
uh, and the general view, the general gist of what mechanism was evolved kind of came on early in my research. It took me all these years not only to assemble the right body of information, the right collection of data and evidence to present and to compare that model to other phenomena and see how it addresses it, but also, believe it or not, to reduce it into understandable language. I can't tell you how many times I rewrote this book until I got it in a way so that what I call, my goal was so that the average person, person with average intelligence, but with an above-average interest in the subject, would be able to understand it and grasp it. Uh, that took quite a while. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, at one point, at some point, you just have to pull the trigger and say, you know, I, this is good enough. Right. And that's what I did, you know, in, in August of 2011 when I published. This is good enough. Uh, and that's when I put the work out. In your information packet that you sent me, it said you've you've been invited on or done uh, 200 shows. Oh, my. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, ever get tired? <laughs> I don't know if I can do 200 shows on the same thing all the time. I think I would go a little out of my head. Do you, do you mind that? Or I guess it's part of your passion to spread the word about this theory. It's what I need to do. Yeah. This is an important story, so to speak. It's well, it's a, it could be a game changer if it all works. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a story that has to be told. And there's no living person that can tell it the way I can. Uh, so that's part of it. Part of it is, you know, to pay the bills. <laughs> you know, to sell books. Um, so that people would share this. You know, I had somebody ask me, well, why don't you publish your work? I said, I already did. You know, anybody can pick it up. Scientists want to pick it up and read it. Let them read it. You know. Oh, I see. You mean, yeah, like they're saying, why don't you publish it like in a scientific journal or yeah. something like that? Mm -hmm. Although to, to publish a real scientific uh, paper, uh, you know, I have to do some more work, obviously, as I talked about. Right. But, you know, the fundamental concepts are there, and they address um, a lot of different issues, some very important issues. Oh, oh, by the way. Let me mention one other thing. Mm -hmm. With the paranormal phenomena, let's leave it at an even 10. There you I go. Guess. Um, at a lower energy level, uh, this materializing vocalization that oscillates the surface of the space-time bubble. Uh, remember I said this bubble's jacketed in an electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. So it would emit electromagnetic compression waves of a specific frequency and amplitude. Now, they're not acoustic waves at this energy level. They're just electromagnetic waves. But they project out. They reach a recording microphone. Now, dynamic microphone, which is the only kind of microphone that really picks up EVPs, uh, it's made with an acoustic diaphragm that's connected to a copper coil and it moves the coil back and forth as the diaphragm moves. And the coil passes through an electro or, or a magnet that surrounds the coil. And that's what creates the electromagnetic compression wave 
of the precise frequency and amplitude so that the electronic device, the recorder, can play it back as an audible voice. That's how a microdynamic microphone works. Right. In this case, what we're doing is we already have an oscillating field at the correct frequency and amplitude. That electromagnetic field bypasses the acoustic diaphragm, doesn't affect it at all, but induces itself directly on the copper coils. It doesn't need to move the coils, and it doesn't, because the, uh, you know, the compression wave is already induced in the coils. The coils send the wave into the device, it translates it into an audible voice, and we hear a recording of a voice where no one present acoustically heard it. Mm. That's an EVP. This has already been demonstrated. In fact, the Roundtree demonstrated, proved this some years ago, that EVPs are electromagnetic phenomena. They are not acoustic. One of the predictions, two of the predictions that this model made was that we should be able to record EVPs in a vacuum where the microphone itself is in a vacuum. And we should be able to record EVPs with the diaphragm of the microphone surgically removed, like with an X-Acto knife. And David Roundtree conducted both of these experiments years ago hmm. and confirmed that this actually, this prediction actually takes place. Very interesting. Um, last year, early last year, I had an interview booked with a woman on a paranormal show who was very much into the psychic end of it. So much so that when we heard, when she heard what I had to say in a preliminary phone call, uh, she said, look, I'm completely unqualified to conduct this interview. I have a friend of mine that's really into the scientific end. Let me bring him on as a co-guest or a co-host. Mm -hmm. And it was this man, David Roundtree. I had never heard of David Roundtree's work. And he had never heard of mine. I was only, what, this was in February of last year. I'd only begun promotions back in November of 2011. So I'd only been on the scene a few months. Most of the characters, uh, you know, the personalities in these fields, I knew nothing of. So he came on the show, and he shared with me later that he was going to, he had kind of an attitude. He was going to come on and debunk me. <laughs> heard all these people talk about, you know, quote-unquote scientific approaches to the paranormal. And essentially, it turned out like a uh, what they were doing was like a tourist running around the countryside with a highly sophisticated digital movie camera right right yeah you know that's not conducting science although you're using a scientific instrument but when i started talking and telling them that this theory predicts we should find this this theory predicts we should find this you know he kept saying i conducted that experiment and that's what i found <laughs> so and you debunked you know, him yeah you know he was he was stunned after going through about a half a dozen or so of these, he'd never heard anything like it before. Uh, and his experiments have confirmed this model. Uh, the gravitational fluctuation was detected very cleverly. Uh, and this is one of Roundtree's brilliances of coming up with devices and equipment that you can make very inexpensively or relatively inexpensively. I always talked about coming up with some sort of a gravometer that would be an enclosed, a, 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 uh, a sphere, enclosed in a larger sphere and suspended with some sort of elastic 
so that when the bend of space occurs, we would be able to detect the movement of that ball, suspended ball inside. What Roundtree did was this. He reasoned, since he's very familiar with electronic equipment, he understood that things like the iPads and the iPhones and the iTouches, they already have a gyroscope in them. So when you rotate the device... Oh, the screen flips, yeah. screen stays level, you know. Yeah. It stays perpendicular, you know, uh, uh, parallel to the horizon. Mm-hmm. So he put several of these together and programmed them. And when they were anchored dead still, and he was able to, at the recording of an EVP, he could see the movement of this gyroscope synchronized in all three of these devices, which means that we were having a gravitational fluctuation on three axes. Yeah. You know, the emergence of a completely different gravitational field than that of the Earth. And so he was just floored, and so was I. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I wanted to crawl through the phone wire and kiss him. <laughs> you know, I said, here's a guy, I found this guy that's conducted all these experiments that I envisioned and did them in ways that I could not possibly have envisioned. Right, right. He set up another device, and this he had done prior to our, you know, uh, you know, knowing each other, that measured the rate of the movement of particles between two receivers. And it was set up in such a way that it would create a pitch. And, of course, they travel through space at a given rate. But if you bend the space between those two meters, you add a curve to it, the speed of the particle stays the same, but it has to cover a greater distance. Because now you've bent the road instead of having a straight road. Even though the car is traveling at the same speed, it takes longer to get back and forth between the two receivers. Right, right. And so you would hear a drop in a pitch. And he found that also. Remarkable. Let's, let's go in a little bit of a different direction, though. Let me ask you, okay. you, you, you know, you, you said that you are let me get the uh, the right wording here. You're fo- you're focused more on the forensics rather than the criminology. Correct. Of the paranormal. Let's talk a little bit though about the criminology part of it. You have to have theories and thoughts and beliefs about what is behind all of this. Well, you know, here's what I look at. Again, I try to take it from a cosmological viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And I know it's very unusual, but most of the time when people hear what I say, wow, that makes that makes sense. You know, let's start by looking at the universe as a system. Now, in physics, in science, chemistry, any aspect of that, when we study a system, the first thing we have to do is come up with a set of principles and laws and parameters that define and establish and characterize the system that we're studying. So let's look at the universe as a system, and it has laws and principles that establish and govern and, and you know, uh, describe it. Uh, not that we're familiar with all of them. We know some of them. Now, that means the next step in that principle is that any subsystem of that system cannot behave in a way that is contrary to or outside of the greater system in which it is a subset. 
you know. Mm-hmm. You're not going to build an internal combustion engine and have it spit giraffes out of the tailpipe. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's not going to happen. You're not going to – you have a given set of a system when you put your Thanksgiving turkey in the oven. You're not going to open it up three hours later and find a Wankel rotary engine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, it's more complex than that, but that's a good idea. So now let's take a look at the human brain. The human brain is a subset of the universe. That means that the human brain cannot operate in a way that is contrary to or outside of the laws and principles that govern the greater system in which it is a component. Now, scientists don't normally like to look at it this way because it drags physicists into a place where here be monsters. And they just don't want to go there. But I could take a scientist and drag them by force to the table and make them sit there by using science's own principles which is what needs to be done to get science to look at these things seriously. you got to go into their ring on their home turf, in their arena, with their home field advantage and home audience and their home rules, yeah. and give them a bloody nose on their own turf. And that's how that's what I've been able to do uh, with this model. But anyway, to get back to what I was saying with the, with the brain, if the brain is a subset of the greater universe, well, we know that the brain is intelligent. We understand that. Mm-hmm. That means that intelligence has to be built into the laws and principles of the universe. That means the universe itself must be intelligent. Otherwise, we would have to confess that the universe gave rise to a subset that exceeded or contradicted the laws and principles by which the universe itself is put together. Hmm. And that logic is indisputable. Right. I'm surprised that no one's ever used it before. Well, I'm surprised that a lot of the stuff you're putting out there hasn't been picked up. Or, I mean, like, kudos to you for sort of putting this all together. I'm surprised it's taken so long for it to be put together. It's like a paradigm. This is what I talk about. If you'd notice... Uh, Tim, throughout our conversation, other than maybe the idea about gravity, that concept, mm-hmm. uh, and how that works together in making some of these predictions and describing the nature of the universe, almost nothing that I mentioned is new. Everything that I'm talking about, for the most part, has been either established findings or, you know, philosophical thoughts. Uh, that have been around for a long time. Uh, the difference is the paradigm. It's like I was saying up front with the information, uh, being a fundamental paradigm in the universe. It's a way of looking at it. Um, for many centuries, we understood what the effects were of earthquakes. We understood perfectly what the effects of volcanoes were. We could observe them. And we could describe them. We know it was hot. You know the earth shakes. All those kinds of things. Right. Just like in a in a, a paranormal location, where we've recorded the effects very well. We know what the effects are, but the causes behind them were just speculative. 
some of the greatest minds in those fields applied themselves to that and couldn't come up with an answer of what was causing them exactly, what was the mechanism, until the concept, the paradigm of plate tectonics came into existence and continental drift. Mm. And that was around the late 50s. It was first introduced in the 30s and was ignored because it was a scientific paper. It was introduced later by Emanuel Velikovsky in his controversial book, Worlds in Collision. Yeah. And they crucified him. Oh, they're still, <laughs> they're digging him up and crucifying him all the time still. Oh, yeah, man. How many <laughs> times can you kill a guy, you know? It's like watching the Magruder film, seeing Kennedy get assassinated a thousand times, you know? Exactly. Um, well, that's another point, though. Do you think that this, your theory is, is kind of radical in a lot of ways. I mean, do you think that it, it would certainly upset the apple cart of mainstream science? Do you think that there is resistance, will be resistance, has been resistance to the idea like I said, maybe maybe you're not the first guy to come up with this, but other people have th thrown it out there and had it shot down, sort of behind the, you know, papers rejected and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, the the resistance. And what I wanted to mention, I just wanted to finish that thought. I'm about sorry, yeah. Drift. It's okay. Now, once we looked at all of those effects through the eyes of that paradigm, suddenly the veil was lifted. And we could understand perfectly not only how earthquakes occurred, and how volcanoes occurred, but that we also understood that for the first time that the mechanism was the same. And moreover, we discovered something new that we had no idea before by looking at the outward effects, that the formation of mountains were the result of the same mechanism. Right. And it was just, it wasn't the increase, Tim, of additional data. It was just that new way of looking at things. And now... A young school child could explain to you the basics of plate tectonics. Exactly, yeah. You know, where the greatest geniuses in the world in decades past without that paradigm couldn't figure it out. So, you know, this is what my theory does. It, it, it gives us a new paradigm. And when we look at it through that lens, suddenly all kinds of things begin to pop up. Um, you know... From the scientific point of view, we have to understand that the philosophy, the predominant philosophy of mainstream physics today is one of materialism. We talked about that before. Mm -hmm. Every material effect must have a material cause contained locally in the same universe. Uh, the problem is in recent years that we've been running out of causes for all the effects that we observe. We literally have run out of material causes to explain all the effects that we see. So what science has reverted to is making up imaginary substances, imaginary material. Now, one of the uh, uh, substances that they've made up that most people know of is dark matter. Right. You know, this is this substance uh, the, the problem is that through our powers of observation, they've become so keen through our instrumentation that we now understand that close to 90% of the gravitational effect that we see in the universe has no adjacent physical mass as a cause. You know, that's paranormal because it's an effect without a physical cause connected to it. 
Calusa said this was non-local, but according to the period, uh, the 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 uh, predominant material paradigm in physics, it can't be non-local. So they have to make up this imaginary mass called dark matter. Now, one of the predictions that my theory makes is that there's no such thing as dark matter. And funny, earlier last year, about mid mid part of the year, yeah, they finished a couple year study where astrophysicists surveyed our local region of space, our solar system, and the stars that are in a handful of light years around us. And when they added everything up, there was no room for dark matter. They hmm. found no evidence of the existence of dark matter. And yet, it's still talked about as if it's real. So that was a prediction that my model made that was proved. Another prediction my model makes is that there's no such thing as supersymmetry. Now, this is an odd thing. It gets a little esoteric, but uh, just on the... The idea is that every particle has a heavier supersymmetrical twin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the Large Hadron Collider was supposed to discover these supersymmetrical particles. One of the first things that it was supposed to do because it operates at the higher energy levels necessary to detect these things. They haven't found anything. In fact, just recently, they came up with a report that based on the results they're getting from the LHC, that they're now thinking that there is no such thing as supersymmetry, where (laughs) all of established physics has believed in this for 50 years. And my model predicts that there's no such thing. And I put myself on the line and said it in interviews. It doesn't exist. It's not real. And people look at me like a quack because they say, what's this guy saying? He's saying opposite of all these well-established and well-known physicists. You know. Yeah. Uh, like I can debunk a lot of the stuff that Dr. Kaku talks about. You know, the Oriental guy starts talking about multiverses and dinosaurs. Asian. And Asian, you mean. You know, I could I could bury that guy. Well, we don't have that much time left, so let's. <laughs> but anyway, you know, and I, and I don't want to sound aggressive, you know, and and, and no, it's all right. I understand you. You're dealing with a, you know, you think you got this great theory, and you you really want these people to really look at it, give it a fair shake, and it sounds like uh, that it's going to take some time for it to really take root. I mean, there's a possibility that, some, that all the pieces of your theory may come together and, you know, sometime down the line they may look back and be like, well, that Fusco guy got it right, like, in the late, you know, in 2011, you know, but now, uh-huh. you know what I'm saying? The One of the, uh, the uh, characteristics of a good theory, and this is part of the scientific method, that, again, that lay people are not familiar with and many paranormal investigators that, you know, say they invest things scientifically. If you ask them to describe the scientific method, they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so one of the things that takes place is that you have a hypothesis, and then you pose questions to it. And if that hypothesis answers the pertinent questions placed to it better than any other system that exists, then it becomes a bona fide theory. And this is what this theory does. It answers very 
you know, serious and dramatic questions uh, in, a, in a consistent way. That's the other criteria, that it doesn't have to make exceptions to its own rules for certain anomalous data. You know, and so then the next part to make it a scientific theory is to make predictions that can be experimentally testable. Right. And so I've got them not only in the paranormal, but it's made predictions on a cosmological scale that scientists have already begun to confirm these predictions, even though they don't know the prediction exists yet. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. You know, it's like down the line, the, the, the physics may change and, and, you know, they'll look back and someone hopefully will be, will give you the credit if it, if it turns out that this is all, you know, all adds up. Well, if I, if I submit a paper, and there's, like I said, there's a lot of work that I need to do. There's a lot of mathematics. I need a damned good engineer. I need a theoretical physicist that is well-versed in relativity and Calusa-Klein theory. And I need a damned good mathematician and that has experience in theoretical physics. If I could put that team together, I could submit a scientific paper. All right. Unfortunately, I'm not qualified for any of those jobs. <laughs> I understand. I'm hoping at some point in the near future that this message will fall on the right ears. All right. Well, we got a lot of listeners right now, and I figure that there's a good group of people out there right now listening to this who are very intrigued by this theory, and I suggest they pick up the book. they got to get it through your website, though. That's the best place to get it, right? That's the best way. It's available to a lot of online booksellers, Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon.com. But the best price, if you go to my website, www.cosmicveil.com, we have a direct link with our distributor, uh, and has we have a promotional code. If you enter that code, you'll get the best price on the Internet anywhere on the book. Nice, nice. And that helps you out more than if it goes through uh, Amazon anyway, right? So. Oh, Amazon's murder, man, I'll tell you. Uh, but we, you know, <laughs> Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and their non-competitive way of handling electronic books is the reason why this book is not yet available in electronic format. I said Amazon and Barnes and & Noble have a certain kind of an artificial way of manipulating uh, the electronic book market. And it's a very non-competitive way that they present to, uh, you know, for uh, to authors with a certain kinds of books like mine. Ah. Makes it very uncompetitive, which is the main reason why my book hasn't been released in electronic format yet. Do you think it's like... You mean books like yours is in paranormal, esoteric books? Books like mine that are over 400 pages. Ah, okay. <laughs> a certain expense to print them and ship them. Uh, and so you have to charge a certain amount of price. Mm. And if you charge the right kind of price, uh, you know, uh, for the electronic version so that you don't kill your business on the printed version. Right. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So in other words, what you do is you hang yourself by running your own competition, by pricing the book in a, in a way that Amazon and Barnes and Noble make it profitable. If you price it to be competitive, they hit you with half of the royalties. They take half your royalties away. Uh, and so it's very odd. Somebody wrote a little chintzy book that cost $2 to print. 
Yeah. You know, and they sell it for $10. They'll actually make more money selling the electronic version for $10. Hmm. But if you have a book that mine costs, it lists for like $33. It's very uncompetitive and it's, it's, it's to, to, to publish it in electronic form. Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. Well, it's a new industry. They'll, they'll figure it out. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, or the courts will figure it out for them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, what's you talk about putting together this team. What's what's next for you? More sort of finding ways to uh, prove this thing via predicted models? Well, certainly that's part of it, uh, is con- uh, constructing new experiments. Um but right now, I think that we have enough that if we were able to sit down and work out the mathematics of this, that it would be sufficient to publish a paper. More uh, predictive experiments would be better. Uh, there's a couple I have in mind that we could perform uh, at paranormal sites. Because, you know, this is what uh, my associate Roundtree says. He says one of the reasons why physics has not been able to come up with a workable theory of everything is because they ignore supernatural phenomena. Any theory of everything would have to incorporate paranormal and supernatural phenomena in order to be a workable theory that would actually function and all the math would balance and everything would work right. Uh, Uh, Well, isn't the opposite point on that, that if they came up with a theory of everything, that it would explain the paranormal? Well, yeah, that's the, that's saying the same thing. Okay. You know, and, but since they ignore that body of data, you know, they'll never come up with it. Uh, You know, a lot of the strange theories that you hear about, like string theory, um, which is very convoluted, doesn't quite work because, in my opinion, what they're trying to do is to describe a system that has both physical and superphysical attributes, confining it to a physical model. So you get all these weird things where they come up with 23 mathematical dimensions, but since they have no superphysical extension of the four dimensions, they have to explain how somehow those dimensions are folded up within four dimensions in a way that they can't be observed, just like dark matter can't be observed. Mm. So the other thing that most people here's here's a good bone for the layperson. Got a couple of good ones. You know the things that scientists don't tell you, they don't tell the public. Uh, one of the things is is that all string theory is dependent upon the assumption that there exists a graviton. If a graviton doesn't exist, all string theory collapses. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it falls prey to what Einstein called, and I call it an Einsteinian principle, of unnecessary complexity. Um, you know, Einstein didn't believe that the final theory would be complex. It would be a simple concept. Right. Like what I'm talking about. Um, another, you know, uh, uh, trade secret 
you remember last year they made this big hullabaloo about discovering the Higgs boson. Oh, yeah. But when you read the quality articles, you know, they had, uh, what's his name, Peter Higgs weeping openly at the <laughs> all that. Oh, my gosh. You know, I thought I was watching, uh, I don't know, you know. Uh, Days of uh, Our Lives. Oh, some reality show, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, all the drama aside, if you read the quality scientifically based articles on this, you'll find out that they didn't come out and quite say they found a Higgs boson. They can't call it the Higgs boson. They say we found a boson within the range of 125 giga electron volts of mass. But they can't call it a Higgs boson because there's problems with that. They discovered something, but it's not a Higgs boson. Right. Now, one of the problems is that the Higgs model describes a field that has a value of infinity. Can't happen. Yeah, that's what you were saying earlier, yeah. Material paradigm. So what did they do? They assumed that the modifier that would bring that mathematical value down into physical reality was going to be the Higgs supersymmetrical particle. Well, now all the evidence shows that there is no such thing because they should have found it before they found the Higgs boson. Right. So here they are, you know, basically holding an empty bag in a way. There's something in it. Uh, but this is not something that you will hear, you know, right. in the public news. Uh, because it's not sensational. It causes you to have to think, exactly. to have knowledge, exactly. you know, and that hurts. My brain hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, my brain's starting to hurt now after this uh, conversation. I'm going to have to think long and hard about these theories and, and, and really how they how they apply to the world around us. And uh, I, th I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation. Well, I'm very uh, um, happy to be here, and I'm, I'm thankful. I thank you for inviting me. and allowing me to share this with your audience, and uh, I had a great time. I did, too. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. It was, a, it was an education for me and has me, like I said, looking at the at the world from a different angle. This, this you know, this, this is a very exciting theory, and if it, if it all comes together, it could be an exciting future as well. It definitely leaves the door open uh, that we could probably do anything that we can imagine. Well, on that note, thank you, Thomas, for coming on the show. Folks, the website is CosmicVeil.com, V-E-I-L. Check it out. Find out more about this theory and this model of the universe, and uh, it very well may be the future fabric of the universe uh, as time goes on. So I think I think you're really uh, on the bleeding edge of, of new science, my friend, and I'm looking forward to seeing further developments, and please keep us posted. And thank you very much, sir, for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Thomas Fusco for coming on the show. To follow his work, check out his website, www.cosmicveil.com. Pretty simple, all one word, cosmicveil.com. And be sure to check out his book, 
Behind the Cosmic Veil. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And since we skipped feedback last week, we've got quite a few emails to get to, and they're covering a whole bunch of different previous episodes. So let's dive on in. The first one comes from usofe.com poster G. Wiz, who had a post in the thread for our episode featuring R.D. Sixkiller Clark. And here's what G. Wiz has to say. Another great episode. Thank you, Tim and Artie. It was interesting to hear indigenous peoples tell of their experience in a very matter-of-fact way. The only other account I've heard of where an entity tries to take a dog was, I believe, in an old UFO book titled UFO Occupants by Jim and Coral Lorenzen. They recounted a tale of a Texas farm boy who saw some being attempting to grab his dog. They, in turn, said, We mean you no harm. We only want your dog. The lad, in turn, told them, Go to hell. Upon hearing this, they immediately jumped back into their vehicle and took off. A weird and unnerving account. In any event, thanks again, Tim, for all you do in providing different guests, different perspectives, and, as usual, great questions. Gee whiz. Thank you very much for your post on the BOA forum, G-Wiz. Much appreciated. I don't have too much to say about this, except that I wanted to highlight the story that G-Wiz dug up here about the ETs, or entities, trying to take the Texas boy's dog. Because I was really blown away by that when I talked to Artie Sixkiller Clark and couldn't recall any other previous tale that was similar. Thankfully, G. Wiz did recall such a tale, and I guess we'll kind of put it out here to the listeners. If you've got other stories of animals and aliens, I would love to hear them. I would love to know if there's anyone out there who's written about animals and aliens, or even other paranormal phenomena and animals, because I think that's a fascinating area that is totally worthy of investigation. And I have a feeling that we've only really scratched the very tip of the iceberg when it comes to that potential avenue of research. So send me your stories if you've got them, or direct me to the stories if they can be found online or in book form. It would be much appreciated. Next email comes from Michael, who is writing regarding the John Rhodes interview. And here's what he has to say. I fall asleep listening to your show every night. This past show was a joke. Your guest said birds are warm-blooded. I'm very interested in the humanoid reptoid theory, but this guy was a joke. Sorry, I just really felt the need to write you and to you this. You're amazing, Knight. Signed, Michael. Then he quickly followed up with the subsequent email which says, Sorry, I'm a little tipsy. Hope my last email made sense. Despite your feelings on the John Rhodes interview, Michael, thank you very much for writing in. Most of your email made sense, except for the part where you say that you felt the need to write you and to you this. But maybe I'm just misinterpreting it. Nonetheless, I totally understand. We've addressed the whole birds are mammals thing, which we covered in previous BOA Audio Listener Feedback segments. So there's no point in belaboring that. I haven't reached out to John Rhodes to find out 
what he meant by that, and if it was just a misstep on his part, which I'm willing to bet it was, but there's really no point in rehashing all of that. Uh, but I appreciate the feedback, and as I said, I'm always interested in hearing what people think, even if they hated the guests. That's perfectly fine. Before I let you go, Michael, I will say this. I'm going to give you some words of wisdom. Nothing good can come from a tipsy email. Trust me. Trust me, Michael. If you're feeling tipsy, step away from the computer. Put the phone down. Close up the iPad. Go and have another beer. And then hopefully pass out. Because only bad things can come from tipsy emails. That's my advice for you, my friend. Trust me on this. I know from experience. (laughs) And no, I will not extrapolate on that. Next email comes from Glenn. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I was listening to the Coleman Rucks interview about the Aurora shooting, and Bruce Rucks asked about why the shooter did what he did, and laid out how he had been published in some of the more prestigious journals and etc., And I got to thinking. I recently told someone about the dead scientist that Stephen Quayle talks about. What if this whole thing was just a way to get rid of someone who would have made some significant advances in his field? My thought. What if this was a more public way to get this future scientific mover and shaker out of the way? Glenn. Thank you very much for writing in, Glenn. As noted, we're digging into the mailbag and clearing out some of these correspondences which came from previous episodes, and I wanted to talk about this one because I thought it was pretty interesting. I appreciate that you have given this some thought, Glenn, and actually sort of put together a conspiracy theory that is enchanting with regards to James Holmes and the Aurora shooting, but I cannot get on board with this one for the simple reason that if the powers that be, if you will, really wanted to silence James Holmes and take him out, I think they would just have him die in some kind of mysterious quote-unquote accident, or he would be, as the conspiracy theorists like to say, suicided. Certainly he would have been killed on the scene of the Aurora shooting. I don't think he would have lived through that if it was part of some elaborate plan to silence him. So I'm going to have to put this one beyond the gray basket. I'm going to have to put this one into my very skeptical basket, simply because it just does not add up as far as what the motivation would be, which is to silence him, or knock him off, or get him out of the way. Because he's still around. He has a larger platform now than he ever had before. So if he had something to say that would shock the world... I have a feeling he would say it, or he will say it in the future, and that goes against the whole idea of silencing him. So, I am skeptical, but I really do love the theory, and appreciate you sending it in. Next email comes from Jeremy in Oakland, who wrote to us on the Banal of America Facebook page. He says, Wow, just came across this podcast looking for shadow people because my usual podcasts have been having way too many psychics. I think this is my new favorite. Need to spread the word and get you some more likes. Thanks for the entertainment. Jeremy in Oakland. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for writing in. I have nothing really to say to that, except that we do not have psychics on the program. (laughs) Given how 
dated some of these interviews are by the time they arrive in your earbuds, it is completely antithetical for us to even interview psychics. And the only way I would ever have a psychic on the show is if somehow they proved to me that they were personally psychic, and then we could really kind of get into their abilities. So if there are any real psychics out there, contact me with some insights that only I would be able to confirm, and maybe we'll have you on the show. But since Jeremy doesn't like psychics on shows, and probably the BOA Audio listeners don't either, it's kind of unlikely. And thank you for spreading the word about the show, Jeremy, and thank you for trying to get us more likes. We are up to 963 likes at the Banal of America Facebook page. After this edition of the program, there are five episodes left here in Season 7, so let's make that our goal. Let's get to a 1,000 by the season finale of BOA Audio Season 7. I have a feeling we can do it. I know we can do it, so let's do it. <laughs> I'm in a very strange mood tonight. I think it's from putting out two episodes in one week. But I think that will wrap up the mailbag here this week. We've covered a whole bunch of different episodes. I would have loved to have featured more feedback on the David Weatherly episode, which we just posted last week, covering black-eyed kids. And I probably will try and tackle those on the next edition of the program. But most of them are really just one-liners by people saying just how creeped out they were by the episode. It was definitely one of the creepiest programs we put out in quite some time, and that was certainly reflected in the feedback. And if I had time right now, I would dig through these one-liners and read them to you, because they are funny and also very chilling as well. So maybe we'll put that on tap for the next installment of Listener Feedback. Speaking of the next installment of Listener Feedback, if you'd like to be a part of that or future segments in future episodes of the program, there are a number of ways to reach me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or just head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. If you want a little more interactive experience, you can join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com, or just click the forum button at Banal of America. It is BOA's paranormal playground, the US of E.com. Head on over and check it out, my friends. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter. So feel free to punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That'll bring up my profile. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, of course, we plugged Benal of America on Facebook. No need to rehash that. Just punch in Benal of America on Facebook, and that'll bring up the page. We're at 963 likes. We're trying to get to 1,000 by the season finale. We've got five episodes left to do it. I am very confident we will do so. And, of course, the 1,000th like will get a shout-out here at the end of the program. And, most likely, a handful of others will as well when we get hovering around that big number. No matter how you choose to get in touch with me, if you have something to say about the program, positive or negative, constructive criticism, 
or suggestions for future episodes, please do so. I read all the emails, all the correspondences I get. I check Facebook, I check Twitter, I check it all, and I try to get back to everybody as soon as possible. Sometimes it takes a while, but I do get back to everybody. So please, if you have something to say, send me your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. Up next, let's take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. BOA 3.0 is churning along, and hopefully in the not-too-distant future, you will be able to feast your eyes on the new layout for Banal of America, and I think folks will really dig it. I have seen an early draft of the page. I am really excited about the direction that it is going, so stay tuned to BanalofAmerica.com, because you never know when BOA 3.0 will launch. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to help us out here at Benal of America. I already did a hard sell on this at the end of the baseball special, but since that only reaches a fraction of the audience, I want to really do another hard sell here to the general BOA audio listeners. Essentially, the gist of it is, in about 10 days, I am going to get crushed by the tax man. My taxes are brutal this year, the worst they've really ever been, and they're going to leave me really in some rough financial shape here as we kick off the spring. So I'm turning to the BOA Audio listeners, the folks who have supported us for so very long, and ask you to please make a donation to the Banal of America franchise, and keep us in the black. How do you do that? That's simple. You can head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you still want to help us out, you can send off a donation to Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232 Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you can find the complete address at Banal of America under the PayPal button. As always, it goes without saying, my friends, that no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we are going to go underground, literally, my friends, as we welcome our guest, William Michael Mott, author of the book Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures. That really is the definitive book on the potential race of creatures, entities, whatever you want to call them, existing beneath the surface of the planet. Michael Mott is not a hollow earth theorist, but he believes in a veritable honeycombed earth, which contains all sorts of strange and troubling entities. And we're going to explore it in depth on the next edition of the program, 
This was a guest suggestion from one of the BOA audio listeners, and they did a tremendous job in suggesting William Michael Mott. It was a fantastic conversation. I think it's going to be a BOA audio classic because we went down all sorts of different roads that I never expected to even be delving into and really kind of threw the notes out early on this one. It turned into a jam session, which almost never happens with a first-time guest, but we really just clicked in a big way, William Michael Mott and I. So we spend really the first half hour talking about the state of the paranormal, and then we get into caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures. And it is really a wild, wild ride. I think folks are going to really dig this edition of the program. William Michael Mott talking about caverns, cauldrons, and concealed creatures on the next edition of BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks to Thomas Fusco for coming on the show. Big thanks to G-Wiz, Michael, Glenn, and Jeremy for their contributions to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners. Thank you once again for your enduring support of this program. It is truly humbling and appreciated. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.